0: Morning. Uh pray with me, please. God our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, to be honest with you, while I was driving into the driveway today, my heart skipped a beat. And usually I try to temper myself if you know me, I'm not emotional. <laughs> but, uh, okay, uh, but i uh, not emotional. You know, I tried to temper myself, but inside my heart was like, yeah, man, we got it, oh, and that's it. Uh, but I was just so thankful, and I know um, we're here gathered together. This place is not finished yet. Even the, to the very last moment, uh, a bunch of guys were putting up sound panels. You see these panels on the sides of the wall? Uh, they were just uh, putting them up. Not all of them up are, are up yet. You see, some spots still need to be painted. There needs to be curtains behind these windows so it's a little darker and things of that nature. But we wanted to worship here as soon as possible, just to give glory to God. And um, you know, you're a part of it, you're part of this uh, CGS history. So I want to welcome you. A lot of um, the Philippines team was very sad. They said we wish we could have gotten here a week before, but we couldn't. So, um, I think some of them are going to be listening to this service here. And um, just know, Philippine team, that we're praying for you, and that we can't wait to have you back so that we can worship together. Um, We have been going through the book of Exodus, and what's amazing is every time we're going through these seasons and changes in the book of Exodus, a lot of us, and myself included, we can't help but to think and relate And be just amazed at how this is parallel to our church life and our personal life and we do believe it's because God is leading not only us but our church and we have gone through from the beginning where Moses was a little baby there's one there Moses a little baby to Moses becoming a man uh, becoming a murderer and then a refugee then a savior figure there's plagues that happen, he parts the Red Sea, there's manna that comes from, down from heaven, water from the rock, and finally we come to this point in Exodus where God gives Moses the law. However, what's interesting is most children's stories and movies, they end here. This is the end. If you saw Prince of Egypt or Ten Commandments or Charles Heston, uh, Charlton Heston, sorry. And it just ends with them having the tablets and we don't know really what to make of it. But if you look in the actual book of Exodus, there's 40 chapters and this is only halfway. This is chapter 20. So at the very least, as a church, we should consider now these sections, these next sections are going that we're going to be going over are extremely and incredibly important. It's as if uh, following the pattern of the text... It's leading us faithfully that God is going and leading his people step by step. Just as we see that God has led us as a church, God has led you individually, step by step, God is leading his people. And what is he leading his people step by step to? God is leading his people step by step, closer and closer to what? To him. God is leading His people closer and closer. We have this building, we have all these things that we went through before, even that we got this place, because God has been leading us step by step closer to Him, showing us His character, His goodness, and His steadfast love. You know, this isn't just about freeing the people of Israel from bondage. It's about being set free from something to do something. God has been teaching His people that He freed them from bondage and oppression, so that they can finally be free to worship Him. If we're excited, we we'll go, "Yeah, that's to God! Praise God for all that He has done, all that He is doing, and we have faith and we're praising Him for all that He will do." God has been teaching His people that He freed them from bondage and oppression so that they can finally be free, be free to worship the true God. So here we are in Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to the mountain and God speaks, giving him and the people his law. The first thing God says is, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. So God purposefully, contrasts himself with Egypt and the house of slavery as he gives his people the law. So he's pointing out something. What is he pointing out? He's pointing out that the God that's giving them the law is the very same God that did these amazing miracles that they saw. And number two, he's also giving um, the people a kind of a reminder. Keep in mind, as I'm giving you this law, the time that you had in Egypt, and listen. You know, when we go step by step, season to season, the people of God are continually exhorted, remember the things that have happened in the past, and remember what I did for you. And even as a church, isn't that our testimony? We didn't have a place to worship, and immediately someone came up, and God used ECS to bless us for worship space, that they decided that week of because we didn't have a worship space the very next week and the board came together with their emergency meeting and they said you can worship in our space the very next week and we had a space and God has been faithful by bringing up people next to us, seriously they are like angels to us and you see here this is exactly what God is reminding His people remember the past because remembering the past you will see and remember God's Goodness to his people, to you. So number one, he purposefully contrasts himself with Egypt and the house of slavery to point out, I am the same God who did these miracles that you saw. Number two, keep in mind where you were and that's going to help you to where I'm going to lead you. And this is what we call the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. In Exodus, it's actually not ever listed as the Ten Commandments is in Deuteronomy and some other places later, they call it the Ten Commandments. But we understand these uh, that Amy read to be the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Uh, And number one starts off with, you shall have no other gods before me. Now if we're keeping in mind these two things that we talked about before, then when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, then they would have remembered Pharaoh considered himself a god. And in that kind of system, whoever has more power would completely be able to do whatever they wanted to whoever else had less power. But God goes the other way and says, God is saying, I am the only one that can claim to have complete power. So he starts off by saying, Pharaoh claimed to have complete power over you. This house of slavery uh, claimed to have complete power over you. But God is saying, no, I have complete power. You shall have no other gods before me. Because in the second and third, you shall not make a, for yourself a carved image or any likeness. And uh, thirdly, about not taking the name of the Lord in vain. When they were in Egypt, they used the gods to whatever they wanted to use them. And we went over this. The gods in Pharaoh's land, or Egypt, were used to support the powerful. The gods were used to support the powerful. But here in God's giving of the law, he's saying, you can't co-opt the divine name for your personal gain. You can't co-opt the divine name for your gain. Imageless meant that no one could attribute characteristics to God. Only God can attribute characteristics to God. So imageless meant you can't put up images and attribute characteristics to God, thereby claiming Him as your own, seeing you could do whatever you want with Him. He's your personal genie. Which leads us to some natural questions like, what about uh, crosses and what about pictures of Jesus? and things of that sort. Do we do that as a church? Um, there was a book written by a mission, missionary, Amy Carmichael, in her book, Gold Cord. There was uh, a small Indian girl, orphan girl, who became a Christian, lived in Carmichael's orphanage, and she had never seen a picture of Jesus. Right now, because we're in the Western world, if I say, think of Jesus' face, you automatically have a picture, don't you? Because you've seen paintings. And this girl named Prina never seen a picture. And so one day, she was sent a package from abroad, and she opened it, she was so excited, she opened it, and she pulled out a picture of Jesus. And then Prina didn't know what it was, so she innocently asked, who, what is this picture, who it was. And they told her that it was Jesus. Immediately when they told her, she burst into tears. And they asked her, what's wrong? And Prina replied this way, when they asked her why she was crying. And she said, I thought he was far more beautiful than that. <laughs> you see, when we automatically attribute images and characteristics to an image, there is something that gets lost because someone else is attributing that. But gets, who gets to attribute that characteristic to God? God does. We don't do that. So can we have crosses and crucifixes and things like that? Um, some, a, bit, a little bit of church history. The Roman Catholic Church used to have crucifixes, which showed or depicted uh, the suffering Jesus. Once the Protestant Reformation came... They took out the crucifix and just put in a blank cross, which signified victory over death. So there was a difference between the crucifixes. Uh, most Protestant churches don't have that. There are a very few cases of maybe some Lutheran churches doing that, but most Protestant churches don't. And most Protestant churches, if they have a cross, it's just an empty cross, meaning it's, uh, it's symbolizing victory. If we ever do get across in this sanctuary, I hope that you see that and know that this is part of our history. All this architecture wasn't to attribute a characteristic to God. It was to show that God has shown us this about Himself, and so we are now reflecting that in our art, in our um, just uh, response, in our worship, in everything that we have. And we see that in church history. They had steeples because they wanted people to look up. And as you would look up at this high steeple, you would naturally be inclined to look up to heaven, remember God. And of course, because it's a steeple, people knew where the church was. It was technically the tallest building in town. And so there are reasons why we have certain architecture, certain artistry. But just know this, we don't depict God in that sense, attributing to him characteristics he has not claimed for his own. And in the same way, we don't use the Lord's name in vain. Remember, this is together that we're going to do it. Uh, If two was to hold to God, to use it for your benefit, then the third commandment is more like to curse according to your will, thereby bringing dishonor to His name. So when you curse and use the Lord's name in vain, you're actually doing the same thing. You're using the Lord's name to, for whatever wish you want, for your own benefit, for your own gain. But the third one is like to curse someone else. So still for your benefit and your gain. And when I hear people use the Lord's name in vain, I just want to say, yes, I love Him. So if someone yells out Jesus Christ, yes, I love Him. I'm sure you do too. That's why you couldn't help but to yell out His name. Um, but this is what the Lord teaches us. Instead, we ought to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means the Lord's name is holy, and we ought to keep it holy. We're not to use His name whatever way we want. So every time His name is uttered, there should be praise and thanksgiving and worship. His name is holy. His name is awesome. We go to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. And if you're thinking about in line again of Egypt, six days you shall labor do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath. It's holy to the Lord. And he says this, you don't do any work. And you could listen to this like, yeah, sure. The Sabbath, I'll rest. That's easy. But my workers will work. He goes on and says, your workers shall not work. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, even the animals, they shouldn't work. And even up to the sojourner, your guest, they won't work. For six days, God made all the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land, all that is in them, and He rested. That's why you should rest. And so in Egypt, production and consumption were unrestrained, especially for the poor especially for their pressed, But God says, I will set a Sabbath to set limits on production and consumption, and yes, for your workers and animals too. Now we could even go even further into this, but I want us to see this in light of what the Israelites may have been seeing and feeling, especially because it had only been three months since they left Egypt. the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This goes in line with you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. In Egypt there was a full-on genocide, a destruction of the family unit. They were able to pull children from families, separate mother and father anytime they wanted. When you heard this, you would have immediately thought God is demanding a respect for parental authority and for marital integrity. And the word for murder in the Hebrew had implied violence. It meant to crush. I mean someone who is more powerful than you can do anything they wanted to you. And God is saying you cannot. We are to have respect for all human life. In Pharaoh's world the weak were especially vulnerable to any violence they were subjected to. What can you do? You're weaker than me. But God is saying, you will have respect for all life. All the institutions that I have set, whether it's the institution of parenthood, the institution of marriage. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. We put these two really quickly together because the weak were vulnerable to economic exploitation. They didn't have anything. But in God's law and His kingdom, the weak are protected from the greedy and powerful. And numbers, uh, and we continue to go on, you shall not bear false witness. And some people think this is only about lying. And so it's not, it's more than that. But if we consider in that line of thinking, why is it so terrible? Think about it. Why is it so terrible when a leader or someone in power lies, isn't it because they have so much of a greater effect on you, if someone in power lies, then you're like, what can I do, because the weak in Pharaoh's world had no legal protection, the ones in power could walk all over them, but in God's kingdom, he is saying any judicial or social system ought to have integrity and impartiality when making decisions, these are the things that God's people would have seen. These are the principles. And even though this analogy isn't perfect, when I heard it, it sounded pretty good for help us understand. It's if you live in America, we have the Constitution. And out of the Constitution, there are federal laws that come out. But the Constitution is the core of where we get all these other laws. So God, in that same way, or we could even say the Constitution mimics what God had, had been doing in Exodus, is there is... A a central kind of core law and out of it we'll see in the next few chapters of all the things that come out from that we see principles being laid out in the Decalogue that that the powerful are to do something, the powerful are to do something the powerful are there to serve those with less, the powerful are there to serve those with less in fact God not only says it he showed it to them In God's kingdom, the powerful are the servants, not oppressors, but ones who would lift up. But let's be honest, we can hear all this, we saw this review. This is not our natural inclination or compulsion. What is our natural compulsion and inclination? You know, we can see that immediately after they get the law, directly from God, mind you, the Bible says... Now when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. The law didn't bring people closer to God. They stood far off. They would yell across the plateau, you speak to us, not God, because if God speaks to us, we're going to die. And Moses responds very interestingly. He says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. And after that, like a movie, like, like a very cool kind of hero, he kind of vanishes into the thick darkness where God was. That's what it says in the Bible. He vanishes into the thick darkness where God was. But here's something that we don't often hear. God is terrifying. Why is it that when we meet or when we are planning to meet a dignitary or leader of a nation, we would be terrified of what we could wear, how we're going to act. We would be uh, concerned with every aspect of decorum that we would present. When it comes to God, why is that not our inclination? Is it because Jesus is your best friend? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is our best friend. And I would even ask, what does that even mean? Are you guys gonna start calling each other, and naming each other by the most, or the latest popular sitcom, and label each other for, you know, you could be this character, you could be this character in the sitcom, and Jesus could be this character because he's just so cool. But what does it mean when the Bible says Jesus, or at least when the Bible says that Jesus calls us his friends? Friendship in the Bible is sacrificial love. In John 15, 12 to 14 it says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he may lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. In other words, friends of Christ are those who love one another. Those who love one another are those willing to lay down their lives for one another. So at the heart of friendship is love and sacrifice. And this is what Jesus was teaching them about friendship. See, but our compulsion and our inclination is not to rightly tremble before a terrifying God. In fact, it's to take advantage of those who are weaker and more vulnerable than us. We never want to lower ourselves, not even before the Great I Am. Think about it. When you get a little bit of power, what do we do? Think about it. When you have a little chance so that people see your status on social media, is it to lift up? Or is it to tear down? And God is showing us that is not how the kingdom of God is going to work. Jesus tells this parable about workers in a field, and He ends the parable with this, So the last will be first, and the first last." And He continues to say, Jesus called them to Him, meaning His disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over men, over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. There's a famous saying out there, if you want to test a man's character, give him power. You can just look at people's Facebook posts, their Twitter feeds, their social media accounts. What are they posting? And that's how you can test someone's character. And here's the thing about the law. We've all failed. We've all failed. We've all failed at keeping even this simple law. And there are two ways many people respond to that statement. The first way is, I didn't fail. I keep the law. I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus would respond to that and said, If you're angry with your brother, or even say, You fool. You've committed murder. If you look at another woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. Notice, uh, just as a side note, he doesn't say anything about marital status. And When I was younger, my father would teach me that anything that I would do with another girl is potentially doing something to someone else's wife. Now, i suppose it goes the other way too. If you're a female, anything you do with something with another man is potentially doing something with someone else's husband. But then here's the thing, when we're younger and we're single, we think, oh yeah, but I'm going to marry this person. All the married people are going to start laughing when they, they hear this because it's just, that's what young people say. But, I'll, but it's this, this kind of mentality and this reasoning is the same thing as saying, you know what, I'm going to get my license anyway, so I'm going to just start driving. You will get a ticket. You will go to jail. Don't do that. Who doesn't covet? Also, who doesn't covet? We live in an age that even celebrates covetousness. Oh yeah, you want that. We've come to a point in our life, in this age, where we have random sales. It's not even a holiday. Random sales where we just buy random items just because they're on sale. Because, yeah, you're gonna need that later at some other point. Just store it here. That's where we are. We even celebrate it. We call it something day, whatever it is. National Sibling Day, it's not even real. But, here's the second way people respond. Oh, you're focusing way too much on the law, man. We're in the era of grace, bro. I don't know why I wrote it like that, but this is the, my imagination. We are in the era of grace, bro. You need to chill with the law. I really did write that, it was, must have been late. but. That's the second kind of response. You are focusing way too much on the law. You've got to kind of calm down there. And here Romans 6 responds, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? And Paul says, by no means. By no means. We're not just supposed to say, we're not under the law, so we can do whatever we want. That's not what it means to be under grace. Because in Romans 3, Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What does this mean? That means now our need is exposed. When God speaks and He gives the law, it exposes the need that we have. So how are we to see? And what are we to do? It seems that if you go under this logic and this reasoning that you're either held captive by sin or you're imprisoned by the law. Either you've given up and given into sin. Sin reminds you like Egypt that oppresses and deceives and you'll respond with things like, oh, I remember back in Egypt, I was able to sit around the meat pots and eat whatever I wanted, which is a complete lie. Or you're imprisoned by the law, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. You grew up in church. You know what it means to put on church dress and church talk. You talk the talk. You're fluent in Christianese. But your entire church experience is just external religious action. Your heart has not changed. It isn't the beauty of Christ that's written on your heart. It isn't the love for Christ that propels you into action. But you have a checklist, and you've gone down the checklist. You got a small group? Check. Sunday morning worship services? Check. You put some money in the offering basket? Check. But your spiritual life is dry, dull, unsatisfying. And if this is the case for you, then you need to hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when He says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law points to the one who would ultimately fulfill it. The law points not only to our need for a Savior, but the Savior Himself. Jesus Christ comes to fulfill the law. He accomplishes what we could not. He gives His life as a ransom for many. And so, see in Romans chapter 3, what I've read, it continues on. Since the law comes through knowledge of sin, but it continues. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the Law and the Prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. This is a verse that we are all familiar with, maybe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the sentence doesn't end there. We may have just memorized this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, comma, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now we are called to be doers of righteousness because we have His righteousness covering us. We don't boast. We're not here to say, look at my works. But we boast. Christ alone. We can love God and love one another because we can take these ten laws and see the first first is about the vertical and the the last six is about the horizontal. But We can see these things but we can do this and actually love because Christ first loved us. And because Christ first loved us He gives us a new heart. And we can serve and worship God because we love Him. I don't take out my wife to dinner, spend time with her and nights watching TV, go to places I normally wouldn't go to because I know she likes the beach and I don't. There's too much sand, I don't understand. But I don't do all these things so that she'll start liking me or I'll start liking her. I don't have conversations with her just because I hope that I can start liking her. I do all these things because I do love her. I like spending time with her. I like to be alone with her because I love her. There is a natural progression that we are to understand that all of the world's religions miss. God loves us first, so our hearts get changed, and we get to now love Him. And out of this love, we are doers of righteousness because we know that it pleases Him. Some of us were confused when it mentioned that we serve God out of the love He gave us. I mentioned this many years ago, I think, and people came up to me and just said, I don't get it. Uh, I know you said it's not out of obligation we should serve, but out of His love for us that overflows in our hearts that we should serve, and I don't really get that. But I wanna add even more to that. The only real service that is done Is service done out of love? If I gave flowers to my wife and said, Here, I owe you these flowers because we had agreed on paper that on the 10th of April I ought to give you flowers. I did my duty. And I walk away. Is that going to be taken well? The answer is no, by the way, just in case you're wondering. The answer is no. I will be in the doghouse. And so that's not a real relationship and that's not real service. When I take you guys out for lunch or dinner and I go, I'm taking you out because I'm your pastor and I ought to. Is that taken well? Should it not be? I actually like eating with you. I like spending time with you. I really sincerely enjoyed spending the weekend doing all of this work with you. Setting up the chairs, three times by the way. We had to fit 260 chairs, we didn't know how. So we had come up with this schematic and it didn't fit. We are like, oh where are the families going to go, we're going to put our strollers, we got to do this again. Because we thought initially we could fit about 370 chairs, but these chairs are mighty big, so you're on extra comfort level chairs. So extra comfort level chairs, we could fit about 260. And so we're thinking about all these things, and we came up with this, will it evolve? think so. I think so. But has God been put into it? Has love been put into it? I hope you get it has. It's not an obligation. Oh my goodness. If we put chairs too close, people are going to get spit on by the pastor. So no actually no one is sitting on the first row. But there are it's okay man. It's not going to kill you. But um, we put these things service is done because we love. And that's real service. But that's what God is showing us. God is the one teaching us that. He did all these things for us because he loves us. Don't you see? The law points to Jesus and Jesus is the way. The law points to Jesus and Jesus is the way because the only real relationship I could ever have was made possible because Jesus made that way for us. Do you feel that you are held captive to sin with no escape? Right now, do you feel that there are some sins that you can't escape? I don't know. It sounded pretty good. But when it comes down to it, once I leave and my eyes behold such things, I don't think I could overcome that. Or do you feel that you're imprisoned by the law because it just shows you that you'll never measure up? Then hear the good news. Jesus fulfilled the law and gave His life up so that we might be clothed in His righteousness. His perfection becomes our perfection. This is not possible by our works, but our faith in His works. So what are we to do? We are to place our faith in the only one who can save. The name above all names. The great I Am, hallowed be, the name of Jesus Christ and he is the one that we place our faith in CGS forever and ever and ever it's a great time it's a great great time to be a Christian I believe because God is building his church and he is growing it and maturing it he's showing us more and more daily about what it is like to love each other to love him so let's study the word Let's see what it says. And let's obey it. Because He loved us first. And out of His overflowing love in our lives, we are able to love. Believe it. And if you don't, and if it's hard, then let's take this time to pray and ask God to change our hearts. Only God can change hearts. Only God can transform lives. And this is what we ask Him do. To do when it's impossible for us, when it's impossible for people, it's possible for God. So let's pray. Let's pray at this time. Where in your life do you have difficulty placing faith in God for? Because we know.